Each step I take, my Savior goes before me, and with his loving hand, he leads the way. And with each breath, I whisper, I adore thee. Oh, what joy to walk with him each day. Each step I take, I know that he will guide me to higher ground. He ever leads me on until someday the last step will be taken. Each step I take just leads me closer home. At times I feel my faith begin to waver. When up ahead I see a chasm wide, it's then I turn and look up to my Savior. I am strong when He is by my side. Each step I take, I know that He will guide me to higher ground. He ever leads me on until someday the last step will be taken. Each step I take just leads me closer home. I trust in God no matter come what may for life eternal is in his hand. He holds the key that opens up the way that will lead me to the promised land. Each step I take, I know that he higher ground he ever leads me on until someday the last step will be taken each step I take just leads me closer home to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 today, Luke chapter 2. Again, we uh, will begin each service with that portion of scripture found in chapter 2, the book of Luke, over the next two weeks after this. Of course, we had last week, now this week, and two more weeks, and of course, that'll be the text of our series, our series entitled Born to Die, Born to Die. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the book of Luke, 
We read, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, as we began last week, we noted that this, of course, is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the fact that he was born and placed in a manger, that he was visited by shepherds and finally visited a year or so, a couple of years or so later by the wise men. He was born in a stable. It was clear that he was a king. But the problem was is that it would not go quite like that in his life. He wouldn't eat from a silver spoon. He wouldn't have all the luxuries and the delicacies of a normal king. His future would be filled with trials and tribulation and ultimately end on a cruel cross called Calvary. The word swaddling clothes that's used here in our passage, when the Bible says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes, suggests that he was born to die. See, swaddling clothes were used at birth and they were used at death. And they were strips of cloth that would be wrapped tightly around the person or thing. And in this case, it was a baby, Jesus Christ. And when he was born, those swaddling clothes were wrapped about him. And basically, they would bring him comfort and a feeling of security. But ultimately, in, in many cases, swaddling clothes was also used at death as those swaddling Claws were wrapped tightly around the body of the deceased. They would basically hold in all of those spices and different herbs and things that were added to that body to preserve that body. And so when we see the word swaddling clothes or that statement made, we're given the, ins the insight, maybe a foreshadowing of Christ and His very death. So we surmise or we can get from that passage that Jesus Christ himself was born to die. He literally came to earth with the intention to hang on a cross. He literally was born and placed in a manger with his future already decided, his fate already in stone. He would die. And he would die on a cross called Calvary. There he would shed his blood. And give his life on behalf of all mankind. If that be the case, how is it that Jesus Christ could wake up every day with a cross looming in his future? With death sneering in his face? How could he live his life victoriously as he did? How could he overcome that great weight of what his future held? The answer is that he lived with purpose. He lived with passion, promise, and power. And last week we noted that he lived with purpose, and we spent time addressing that issue. And we said that everyone needs to live with purpose. 
Everyone needs to live their life on purpose. And we expressed that and we shared that. And so we move on today and we begin to deal with that second aspect of his life. That part of his life that made it possible for him to live although he faced death every day. Although the cross loomed in his life. The truth is, is that each of us is born to die. The truth is, although you may be young, you may have your whole life, quote unquote, ahead of you. It may seem that the grave is way out there. (laughs) The truth is, death is as much a part of living as life is. It's as much a part of your being as birth was. But the truth is that each of us, although born to die, will make a choice how we will live. And the vigor in which we live and the legacy in which we leave in death will be dependent upon our possessing some of those same qualities that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ lived a life of passion. He had great compassion and great love for people. And because of His great passion, He was able to face the hardships, the trials, those difficult times that He faced regularly and faced them victoriously. So today I want to share with you the second part of our series, Born to Die, called A Life of Passion. Everyone in this room needs to live a life of passion. And so we're going to take just a few minutes and consider that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We don't have long today, Lord. We certainly were blessed and encouraged by the children. Father, those bells ringing and those children up there just uh, having a great time, Lord. Well, they're so proud to be up front and they were so happy to be able to perform for you and for their families. Father, I just pray, Lord, you'd bless each of those children that you'd meet their needs, that, Father, you'd wrap your loving arms about them, protect them and care for them, nurture them. Father, be with their families and those that were here to support them and encourage them and to share in this time, that important time in their life, one that they'll remember. I thank you, Father, for these that took the time to make their way here. But now, Lord, may you bless us even. We're asking you to speak to our heart. Father, each of us will live a life. And if you tarry your coming, we will ultimately die. At least physically die. The grave will be a place that we will end up. But Father, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to learn how to live. There's no reason, Father, for us to dwell on the future in the sense that we dwell on death. It serves no purpose. You give us so much to be concerned about and consider and to do now that we need not worry about that day. Help us, Father, like Christ, to live with purpose and to live a life of passion. Now, bless this service. And, Lord, if there be any that are without you that do not know for sure heaven's their home one day, may you help them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for each of us, may we, Father, be encouraged to live that life of passion. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, that passion that Christ lived moved him. It moved him. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody had retired for the evening, and it was about midnight. A 
from what I can read and understand, that he arose with great conviction on his heart. See, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, had committed his life to Jesus Christ and he had made a commitment to God saying that he would share the gospel with someone every day of his life. But opportunity had not knocked that day. It seemed that no door had swung wide open and that day he had failed or had not been able to share the gospel or did not share the gospel. We're not really told in the account, but what we do know is as he arose that night at midnight, his heart was burdened with conviction because he had yet to witness to that soul that he had promised God he would. D.L. Moody uh, put on his clothes, got out of bed, uh, got out of bed first, I should say, then put on his clothes and headed out into the wet, rainy night. He saw somebody across the street with an umbrella, and there he ran across the street, and he asked if he could share the umbrella. That man uh, allowed him to do so, and as he shared his umbrella, D.L. Moody shared the gospel, and the man was gloriously saved. See, D.L. Moody was a man of passion. D.L. Moody loved people, and he loved souls, and he loved his God. And that passion that D.L. Moody had for souls, for the eternal destiny of all mankind, moved him. It moved him out of a warm, comfortable bed into the cold, rainy night. And in like fashion, the passion that Jesus Christ possessed moved him. It moved him from a comfortable heaven to a chaotic earth. The book of Philippians tells us, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Literally God himself, Emmanuel, left the portals of glory and came to this earth where he dawned Humanity. And he lived his life in this cesspool of sin for you and I. That passion, that love, that compassion that he had for you and for me ruffled his comforts and said, You must get up. You must go to earth. You must die on Calvary. You must give your life. His passion moved him from heaven to earth. But it also moved him from a manger to a cross. Christmas is a wonderful time and I, I really enjoy Christmas. You do what you want, but I think Johnny Mathis is the bomb. I don't think Christmas is Christmas without Johnny Mathis and Bing Crosby, Karen Carpenter. You do what you want, but I'm going to listen to that stuff, man. I, I like it. I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff out there I probably don't like. I, I listen to some of those radio shows, you know. I, they've got some of them that are just playing Christmas music all the time, and I've got to flip the station from time to time. 
But man, I want to tell you something. I, I love Christmas and I love Christmas music and I, I love the idea of saying and stopping by my house and I like all those things that go on. Jesus was born and that's why we celebrate Christmas. And I'm glad that the world recognizes the birth of Christ. And although Satan may not be happy about it, he still hasn't squelched that. He hasn't quenched that. He hasn't put that fire out yet. Still, people like you and I and around the United States of America and even around the world recognize Christmas as the day that Jesus Christ was born. Jesus was born and there He was placed into that manger. He was wrapped in those swaddling clothes and... As he laid in that manger, he already had an appointment with death. What enabled him to endure the grief, the heartache, the horrors of this life victoriously? His great passion did. His passion, that very passion that moved him, the very passion that motivated him, that passion that kept him going, that passion is what caused him to go from the cradle to the cross, to take his place on Calvary when he knew that all he would experience is suffering, hardship, and torment. In John ten seventeen and 18, the Bible says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. What he's saying is, nobody has to make me place my hands there and have the nails driven by. Nobody has to force me to take my place on Calvary. Nobody has to make me go to Jerusalem where I'll be mocked and made fun of, maligned and mistreated. Nobody has to do that. I willingly suffer myself, give myself, surrender myself to that. Because of my great passion, my great love for you. That passion moved him. But that passion motivated him as well. As you read through the New Testament, as you read through the Gospels actually, you see that that passion motivated him for sure. He exhibited a love for his followers. I mean, you can't help but read it and see that love that he had for his followers. I mean, I think of Peter's mother-in-law who lay sick with fever. The Bible says in Luke 4, 38 and 39, And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. What great compassion. What great love. One of the things I enjoy so much about these, this time of year is that there seems to be a sense or kind of a, a focus on others, it seems to me. You know, people are concerned about whether children will have toys and whether there will be food on people's tables and folks that would probably never be concerned at all about others whose lives are wrapped up in themselves. It seems that even those people at times aren't Scrooges. Even they find it hard not to have compassion, not to demonstrate some sense of love, not to give of themselves and their, their, their property and their possessions to others. I like that. Jesus' whole life, every single day of His life, was lived for others. 
it motivated him. It motivated him, and as a result, he exhibited a love for his followers. He takes Peter's mother-in-law, and he sees her sick and hurting and in need, and he can't help because of his great passion and his great love for her to say, Woman, be healed, rise! His friend Lazarus is now dead. Mary and Martha approach him as he arrives there in Bethany and they say, if only you'd been here, if only you'd been here, he would not have died. Jesus' heart is heavy now. The Bible says he wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. Probably one of the greatest of all. The great compassion, love, and passion of our Lord Jesus revealed. He makes his way to a tomb. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. He rises from the dead. Jesus' life was a life of passion. Although a cross loomed in His future, compassion burned in His heart. Because of that, there was no price too great to pay. The Lord looks over a city now. A city of His own people. Jerusalem. And there in John 11, He cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Oh, I've reached out to you. I've come on your behalf. The Bible says He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But even so, He still continued to reach out to others. Even so, He continued to lift up others. He kept trying to reach them because He had such great compassion, such great love. And that love is what kept Him going when times got tough, he could not quit. He could not stop. He couldn't just call the angels and say, Usher me back to heaven. I'm through. I'm finished. I can't take it. Instead, he worked and prayed through the night because he realized there were others depending on him. It exhibited... He exhibited a love for his followers, but he also exhibited a love for his foes. It's easy to love those that love us. But Jesus loved those that hated him. In Matthew, we read the words of our Lord. He says in chapter 5, verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies. 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Again, this may seem like an impossible request or command to obey. But one thing we must admit about Jesus Christ is that He practiced what He preached. One may say, well, you know, He was God. It's not the same. It was easier for Him. But may I remind you that He hung on a cross as a man. He felt every blow to His face and head. Every thorn that pierced His brow. Every torturous lash of the whip upon His back. Every strike of the hammer. Every nail that pierced His hands and feet. He felt the cold slap of rejection upon His person. The piercing dagger of hatred directed at Him. And the crushing weight of sin that rested upon His shoulders. And still, and still He cried, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. No, Jesus can demand that we forgive and love our enemies because He blazed the trail for us. In Romans chapter 12, turn if you would please there, verse 19. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. He says to those that call themselves believers, the children of God, dearly beloved. Verse 19, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. It seems to me there ought to be a question mark there. Feed him. If he thirst. Give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank God he loved his enemies, though. I'm so glad that Jesus loved his enemies, for we ourselves were his enemies before we came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and were added to his family. In Romans 5.10, the Bible says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, when we were enemies, he says. Someone says, I was never that awfully bad. I was never that wicked. I was never that sinful. I know so many people that were worse than me. You were the enemy of God. The enemy of God. And so was I. Thank God He loved His enemies. For if He did not, we would all perish in the lake of fire. Not only do we see the passion, that passion moved Him, that passion motivated Him, but that passion that He possessed made Him I mean, it defined His person. It testified of His deity. See, only God could love man like Jesus did. 
I mean, He loved you and I unconditionally. And yet, may I say, before we jump to any conclusions, that does not mean that we are off the hook. Well, I'm not God, so I couldn't love man. That doesn't mean you don't keep trying to. Nor do I. After all that mankind did to him and that they did to his creation, he still loved them and he saved them. It testified of his deity. But that passion also testified of his disposition. See, the life of Christ is marked with example after example of his passion and love. You know, when you think about Jesus Christ, when you begin to recollect and remember some of the things that He did and His person and His, his life, <laughs> I mean, you can't help but be reminded of love. I mean, that passion labels Him. A man of passion, a man of love, a man of compassion... That's what we think when we think of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 16, it says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. See, love is who Christ is, not simply what he did. Love should pulsate through our own being. Our lives should be characterized by it. And those around us should feel and experience that love on an ongoing basis. In 1 Corinthians, turn there, if you would please, to chapter 13. That passion or love or compassion that Jesus Christ possessed that ultimately enabled him to face life victoriously, although a cross loomed in his future, is a love that you and I should possess today. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, referring to the Apostle Paul now, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and as tink- a tinkling cymbal. Simply put, he's saying if my words in my life do not match up, then they're vain indeed, empty. To talk about how much I love, yet not to live it, betrays me. And even if I do all the right things, say all the right things, go all the right places, And I don't love. And it's a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass. A bunch of noise. A bunch of hot air. Clouds without rain. He goes on in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, and so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Hold on now. Paul just defined what nothing is for us.
we become nothing when we fail to love as Christ loved. Paul said it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, I can preach this book. I can live the life. I can do all things that appear to be godly on the outside, but if I do not possess Christ-like love in my heart, if I don't exhibit Christ-like love into a world that is loveless and heartless and hateful, if I can't share Christ and His great love with others, then I am nothing. I think sometimes we misunderstand what it means to love, obviously. I don't think love is giving a crack addict money. I don't think it's giving a drunkard alcohol. I don't don't think it's giving an adulterer a life without... What is it called? Accountability. That's not what love is. Love is not spoiling my children so that when they grow up they don't appreciate things. Love is not failing to discipline for fear that my child won't love me. But when we talk about Christ-like love, we're talking about a love that gives and gives and gives. A love that says you may not be everything you should be, but for who and what you are, I love you. It's not what you do for me or on behalf of me. It's just because of who you are and what you are, just because of you. See, that's why Jesus loves you. Because you offer Him nothing, neither do I. But God loves us anyway. And the Lord Jesus Christ walked upon the face of this sin-sick world. He lived here. He, he, he loved here. He, he, he allowed Himself to love people that did not love Him. They offered Him only mocking and heartache and trials. And yet He wrapped His arms about them if they would only come unto Him. He loved them. And that's who He was. And He was characterized by that passion that He had. In 1965, a song was released entitled, What the World Needs Now. You know what it is. Love, sweet love. It says, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Now listen, that song was born out of the love movement of the 1960s. And its emphasis wasn't purely scriptural, we're sure. The world has its view of love, though. But the biblical view held and practiced by Christ drove Him to Calvary. It wasn't just to a good time. 
It wasn't just to fulfill his need. It wasn't just so that he could feel like a man. His love drove him to sacrifice. His love. Moved him, motivated him for others. I've shared it a number of times, but let me do it again. Many years ago, there was a great meeting of all the Salvation Army delegates. Of course, the highlight of the meeting was the final address that was always given by General William Booth, the founder and the director of the Salvation Army. Everyone there waited expectantly. They, they were excited about hearing from this man of God that was such a prolific soul winner and man of God. Finally, word arrived that General Booth would be unable to attend. Of course, there was great disappointment. However, he had sent a special message for all the delegates that attended. Anticipation built. They waited on the message from their great general. I mean, what would he possibly share with us? What great truth would he pass on? What stirring and challenging theme would he present? As the message was opened, the following words were read. Members and friends at this great convention of the Salvation Army. Others. That was it. Others. The spokesman sat down and there was total quiet as they pondered that message. Others. When it's all said and done, that's what Jesus' passion was about. It was about others. And that passion moved him. It motivated him. It caused him to get up every morning and to live his life to the fullest. To give his very best every day to his Father in heaven, to his followers on earth, and even to his foes. And that passion is what moved him and motivated him to take his place on that cross to die for you and I. Others. See, when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, His eyes were fixed on others. Passion kept the Savior going. Jesus could face every obstacle, endure every heartache, and even face death because He lived His life with passion. Love drove Him. And His great passion moved Him to suffer on our behalf. It motivated Him to demonstrate compassion to all men, both friend and foe. And eventually, it made Him and defined Him. For today, when we think of Jesus, we think of love. Will you choose to love others today? I mean to live a life of passion.
Let's close our Bibles and prepare for just a moment of reflection. Think about that question for a moment. Will you choose to love others today? Choose to live a life of passion. Oh, it's easy to love my wife if she's loving me. My children if they're obeying me. My family and loved ones if they're respecting me. It's easy to love my church members when they recognize me and bless me like last week. It's easy for you to love a pastor that responds to you in a loving, caring way. But what if, what if, you don't have that husband, that wife, that loves you like they should? What if you don't have that boss and co-workers that recognize your value? What if you have, don't have that mom, that dad, that those aunts, those uncles, those family members that respond to you with respect? Maybe there's even a church member that doesn't seem to respond to you as you would or think they should, really. Will you choose to love? Choose to live a life of passion? And compassion? When's the last time someone lashed out at you and instead of feeling so angry and desiring to just really just tear into them and give them what for? Your heart broke with compassion as you viewed their actions and thought of their hurt and realized God, I feel sorry for them. My heart breaks for them. If that is how the only way they know to respond in this situation, obviously there's a much greater hurt than I can see. A life of passion. I wonder today, before we close... Have you ever experienced that passion firsthand? I'm talking about not from a, another person, but literally from Jesus Christ Himself, the one who literally died for you, who did leave heaven and did come to earth, who suffered, bled, and died on your behalf, who rose again the third day. Have you received that love and experienced it firsthand? See, when He was on the cross... You were on His mind. And today as you relax in that pew, may God's Spirit be moving you to great conviction. And may there be someone and something inside saying, if He loved me that much, how can I not love him in return. See, we do love Him because He first loved us.
And today, maybe you do not know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. You've never experienced His passion, His love firsthand. There's not a personal relationship that you've entered into. You've never called upon Christ and invited Him into your life as Savior, as Lord of your life. I want you to know that He did it all for you. Won't you come to Him today? The Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. See, He's knocking. He's asking for admittance into your life, into your heart. But you must be willing to unlock and open the door to literally receive Him. That's how simple salvation is today. Will you receive Him? Father, we come to You. We thank You for this time we've had together now. And as Lord, as we all remain with